Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Nahid Malabakas Ring, who is an assistant professor at Scuba University. Very nice to speak to you today. Good to speak to you too, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. This is actually the second time that we've spoken, but the last time was a very, very short segment post the Listening SIG uh, conference That's last correct. summer. Sorry, it was one of the compilation ones that uh, I like to do from time to time. You are uh, on the street, I believe. Yeah, man on the street, man on the street, pod on the street. Uh, but since then, you've changed your job. You've moved to Scuba University. I have. I've been there for about a year now. Um, so I'm an assistant professor there, teaching freshmen and some electives to sophomores and upwards as well. So yeah, a bit of a, a different job, a bit of a challenge. That's always good. I, I like the idea of a challenge. Uh, but you're also the coordinator of the JALT Listening SIG, and that's something we're going to get into later. But today, the paper we're going to be talking about is developing graded TED Talks to integrate academic vocabulary into listening lessons for pre-sessional learners. And once again, can I congratulate you on trying to get as much of the paper as possible into the title? This is something I spoke about with Scott Aubrey uh, a couple of weeks ago. Having having read the paper, uh, someone who I've worked with and interviewed uh, before and actually done research with, uh, Joe Siegel, comes up. So I, I do have a, a tangential background uh, in this field. Um, but I want to start with uh, the criteria for good listening materials. Um, as someone who has, you know, who coordinates a listening SIG, and this is clearly something that is very important to your research. Uh, what was it about TED Talks that kind of fills this criteria for good materials? First of all, I do a lot of my work based on TED Talks, but I'm trying to show this as an example resource. We have so many resources out there and they're just so accessible. They're free for students. They're free for us to use as educators. But I, I find just if I kind of gravitate towards TED Talks, it, it's just a very, very good baseline and it shows different things that we can do. Um, to answer your question about the good criteria, there's quite a lot of things. So in my research, I started looking at different aspects that there have over the years more and more so papers researching about what makes a good TED talk, what doesn't. Um, and you can find different aspects, different lists that kind of help your own teaching, your own context. So one, one paper that I've been using to kind of delve into the aspects is Romanelli et al's 2014 paper. They looked especially at TED Talks and compared TED Talks with academic lecture aspects. And then they had a list of 12, which I kind of summarized and thought about my own context and in there they they state 12 different aspects which can be too many so I kind of focus on the academic topic what's the um, relationship between the TED talk that I've chosen and the major of my students what kind of speaker is it you want a range of speakers researchers mm -hmm. you want people who are also lecturers you want different types of jobs in there so they're getting a different range of delivery and then also accent and speed is a consideration. It doesn't have to be a huge consideration, but 
it's probably something that you you want to expose your students to in terms of they've got different accents. I find maybe you find this as well, Chris, that when you're in the classroom, it's like, where's this North American accent? You know, who are you? <laughs> so it takes a, a little while for them to get used to other range of Englishes. So by the end of, of the semester, students do get kind of used to the British accent, I hope. And of course, the length is a big consideration. I like to choose mm. tests which are under 12 minutes. In extensive listening context, the student can challenge themselves. But I think for kind of 45 minutes, 60 minutes, you know, under 10, 12 minutes is, is a good range. Can I ask you also, it, it, the, the, the speakers that you choose, and you want to try and find content that relates to your students' majors, do you ever tell your students, uh, just to the framing of this question is I do this, but I will select TED Talks uh, within which I do not agree with some of the opinions or all of the opinions that are being expressed. But I also put that in there to kind of challenge their preconceptions of what this kind of topic is, whether it is uh, politics or technology or uh, freedom of speech or things like that. Uh, do you also kind of filter for content and also let your students know that this is not necessarily your opinion through someone else's voice, but it's just giving them something else to think about? So I think I can answer that question if we divide it up into in-class selections and then what they choose um, in extensive listening selections. So in class, because I teach mainly university students, I do gravitate towards using SDGs. Mm -hmm. and those kind of topics so there will be like a problem and a solution and we'll talk about how it works in that particular speaker's context and then the agreement or the opinion which is related to that is me asking them okay would it work in japan would it mm -hmm. work in in our situation and um, so that's as far as it would go in terms of the opinion i don't think i i choose ones which are more you know like subjective or controversial or or things like that mm -hmm. but in extensive listening of course you know whatever resource they choose it's it's up to them so they do tend to choose ones which are a little more opinionated and that's good to see so so obviously that gets their critical thinking going mm -hmm. and it makes them think about what they agree with what they disagree with um, one particular example I remember in the past is one, this is one I did in class, so I take back a little bit of what I've just said, but it was about Michael Pritchard's um, making a new water filter for, um, for people in Africa. And he was trying to do some, um, I think he was trying to raise funds. And one of my students got particularly upset about this because the governments were not helping. And, and he was very opinionated about why does he have to make money? Why does he have to try and raise mm -hmm. money for this really great invention that's going to save so many lives? So that that was like the, the like kind of insight into how opinionated your students can get, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I follow the, uh, the Galloway Rose uh, method of having students create listening journals by themselves. So... Um, I give them a range of uh, sites that have extensive video material, uh, including TED, but also uh, BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera. Uh, and I'll even allow YouTube from time to time if they can uh, find a, a good um, source and have them curate three or four videos on a, on a given topic and then tell me what they saw and then what they think about it. And I, I agree that that's basically where you get to 
learn more about your students' opinions and proclivities through the choices of videos that they make. So, um, but, but Ted's good for that in giving a range of them. It's just uh, um, when we're selecting the materials for what we want to show them, I think it, it's also important that we include things that we sometimes maybe we agree with uh, half of it. Maybe we, we disagree with half of it. Uh, I'd like to keep things practical uh, in when we when we do papers that are related to classroom materials. What can teachers do with these materials? How can they uh, in, uh, introduce them, include them, have students work with them? Uh, what are the things that you, you cover in, in your paper that are kind of practical elements of this kind of material? So, I mean, I think there are a few different listening techniques that you can use in the class and by showing students what they can do with these materials in class, hopefully they can try to do that on their own outside of class. So obviously you can do things like modeling. So if you are using any type of resource for a presentation example, I know a lot of people use things like TED Talks or news stories for presentation-based content. So um, I also use news websites for them to kind of research and to source ideas, and then they can kind of use a presentation for that. You can show a TED Talk and then use that to teach about accent, pronunciation, gestures, and body language. You can also um, just also do traditionally what we do with comprehension check but it doesn't have to be just your standard true and false or you know multiple choice questions you can make that more a listening circle a discussion you can um, make it more of a quiz a competition so there are ways to to kind of make um, comprehension checks more interactive and maybe just a, a little more challenging for students Hmm. Um, in terms of you you mentioned Joe Seagull before so we've done some work together on note taking and with note taking of course you can think about just teaching your students different note taking skills and um, so that that is kind of one of the the core aspects of what I was doing in my master's and my earlier PhD work so teaching week on week like listening for keywords listening for cues how to use kind of abbreviations, how to summarize. So you can work on that over a, a semester or the shortest length of time I've done it in is over like five weeks. So depending how long your, your quarter is or your semester is, that, that can be done as well. Um, and just working on pronunciation and different perception activities. So um, focusing, as we mentioned, on different accents, thinking about how we can identify links, blends, because these are kind of, the, the core problems that students have in terms of listening comprehension and listening difficulty. They can't kind of sound out words. So if we can teach them what words sound like and, you know, you're, you're not static, you're not reading out every single syllable when we are speaking, then, you know, that can help them to, to get better in their listening as well. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack in there. Well, uh, first of all, um, I don't want to make an uh, appeal from authority, but uh, I was actually uh, the the first person to work with Joe Siegel on note taking uh, over a decade ago. So, um, and uh, we we interviewed him on his paper. Did you take good notes? And so I, I understand there's there's a lot in there that uh, we want to as teachers kind of uh, you know encourage students to not write down every word because 
when we speak, we generally don't sound out every syllable. That being said, um, the Japanese performance of English is regularly graded as the most comprehensible for non uh, first language English users because of the uh, syllable timed rather than stress timed performance of it. Do you recommend to your students that they model their accent or their performance after any of the speakers that you use? Or do you allow them to continue with their uh, performance so long as it's comprehensible? So are you focusing on pronunciation? Pronunciation, yeah. Um, I think as long as they can recognize the different accents and be able to understand. So, so for me, it's not so much you're using this speaker as a model. Mm. What I want to do is use different talks to see what listening strategies they can use, how they can approach that input and how they can understand it. And then from, from that, instead of more kind of speaking skills and pronunciation that we can copy, um, I want them to think about how they can summarize that information and, and apply it more practically to their own context. So, of course, there is kind of the opportunity where if we are doing presentation only kind of lectures or if we are doing presentation only assignments that you can focus on that. Um, and as I mentioned, like I do a little bit just in terms of focusing on what is the body language, what are the gestures, what is emphasis. But I want the student to be able to do that comfortably in their own kind of mm, L1 mm. or L2 um, approach to language rather than try to imitate a presenter. Mm. In terms of the presenters that you choose, uh, are there any that you have found present uh, students in Japan with particular difficulties? I mean, as, as you said before, they're, they're, they're usually primed to uh, understand North American English or uh, much better than they would uh, even Australian, New Zealand um, or British. So are there any of the speakers that you found have given them particular problems? I think we, that, that there are some European accents that they find most difficult, actually. So there are like German speakers and French speakers who are doing a great job speaking English, but it's just such a new accent for students that they mm. don't understand um on in contrast if you choose um speakers that are maybe l1 chinese speakers or korean speakers then they they tend to understand that accent mm. a little bit better which i i found a bit surprising compared to you know understanding an australian or new zealand speaker they would probably understand a, a chinese speaker who was using english as their l2 Hmm. So that was surprising. So I think we just need to be able to accommodate a little bit more if we are choosing European speakers who are speaking hmm. English as their L2, because that can just be completely new to them. I think, uh, well, I think I've told this story before, but uh, my wife, who's Japanese and a very good uh, speaker of English, through her study, she came up with... Uh, an understanding of why accents are difficult for her. So she said uh, things that are American accents or more rhotic uh, accents of English are analog in that, you, that there's more peaks and troughs and uh, it's kind of difficult for Japanese speakers to understand them other than, and, and she called uh, British English more digital where that we would hit the uh, syllables or we'd hit certain 
you know the t's and the and the p's much harder than the than the americans would um Given your own accent, uh, because I have a, another story to tell, but given your own accent, have you have you found that uh, students found it easy to adapt to uh, your accent versus their previous language teachers? So um, I'm teaching a class for the whole year at the moment. Mm. A lot of my freshman classes are. So, so we've just returned um, after the break and it just, means that they need maybe about 30 minutes or so just to get used to your accent again. I think that there are certain things that we do in class though, Chris, I think you'll agree that we have our teacher's voice and that we, <laughs> that we go in and I, I, I probably sound more RP when I am in, in the classroom. So you are enunciating more, you are slowing down a little bit you have your ppts as as an extra visual guide so mm -hmm. all of those things collectively as well as them helping each other does help i find when i go around and i'm talking to students that you know that that's when they're a bit off guard because there is no support and they really do just need to listen to me and there there is a little bit of repetition um but i think certainly they, they are used to it and some some students have commented that they appreciate having a different accent and uh, a teacher who is not North American just simply because it's more exposure for them so I think if they're they're willing to or if they just stick at it they do get used to us eventually <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing it, it, you are right about a teacher's voice and I, I it is the voice I'm, I'm using now in this in this interview um, but it's always fun when you meet someone else from the UK and then you you ask them, where do you think I'm from? And they're like, uh, Norwich, Leicester. And I'm, I'm from Sheffield. And so, and I was recently in Sheffield and it's so easy to go back into same accent that you were doing, you know, 20 years ago. Got but, that twang there, Chris. Yeah. But I can't, you know, but I can't do this in class because students won't understand me. So uh, I think I think you kind of get it's I don't know if it's RP, but I think it is teacher, teacher P, TP, as it were, um, where you just smooth things out. And as you say, you use all these speaking strategies, repetition, um, you know, front loading the most important thing to the start of the sentence and things that other people don't do. I want to move on to because you mentioned presentations and not only a model of accent, but a model of a style of presentation. Um other than TED Talks being useful, grounded materials and authentic materials, um, are there any other ways that students benefit from the talks? I mean, for example, structure, confidence, uh, knowing what to say you know, and how to say it. Are there other metalinguistic uh, components that you think they get from presentations like TED? Um, I also use them for discussions, and I think discussions are a, a a good way for them to really delve into the structure, the outline of a TED talk. So with discussions, we do try to recognize the the different markers that are used by speakers. So are they going to present a list? Are they going to present problems? Are they talking about a solution? So by giving them the the language or the stems for that, they can then listen out and recognize what the speaker is doing. And then that gets them to really think about the structure and the different 
components of the speaker's talk. And, and in this case, for discussion, they choose one topic that they're interested in. So everybody's got a different topic, which is great. So they will then go through, they'll have a look at that language, they'll see about how it's presented, if there are any visuals to go with that. And then because they have to discuss it at the end of semester, they're, they're almost paraphrasing or repeating some of that language. So mm. they're picking up how to structure a talk which is based on one, pro one problem, three solutions, or a cause and effect, or being able to discuss how it works and how it doesn't work. So they can pick up language, I think, subconsciously that way, and then be able to use it practically in their assignment. Hmm. Uh, I when we when we start looking at presentations, so I don't in, introduce presentation organizational strategy very early on in the course. It's usually about halfway through, but yes. students have to do spoken components from the very beginning. And when I start introducing it, um, I use I don't know if you've uh, seen the movie Minions, where uh, Bob the Minion becomes king of England. It's a very convoluted situation, and he has to give a speech and. He just starts it off with, and he's very, very nervous. So he just starts off and he just shouts out, King Bob! And everyone just, Aah! and then obviously the minions talk gibberish. And then he just, just this gibberish talk for about 30 seconds. And then everyone's just looking. And then he just, at the end of it, just shouts, King Bob! And they all go, Aah! so, and I use that as an example for my students, which is like, you might be the only person in the world who knows what you're talking about. You might have researched it as much as you want. You might have all the sources that you need. You might have all the, the, the support that you need. But the people in the classroom might be staring blankly at you the whole time. So if you think that's going to be the case, and uh, I think, uh, Ted, there's some good TED Talks for this as well, where they establish um, a mantra and then they keep coming back to it. I, I always uh, use the example of Simon Sinek. Uh, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And his talk is quite long, so I signed up for homework. I don't I don't use class time for it. But I think in the whole um uh in the whole speech, I think he uses that mantra, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, uh, about 10 times, something about like 10, 11, 12 times. And even if you don't get exactly what he's trying to tell you about his golden circle and the why and the how and the what and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think that's a it's a useful thing to to get from um, Ted. So I, it's why I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, the other things that students get from it. Um, I always recommend uh, Simon Sinek as someone who, uh, I use that in my, uh, in my MBA class for my business students because it kind of explains how generally you should structure a sales pitch or how you should uh, get students involved in it. Uh, I also use uh, Angela Lee Duckworth and her uh, presentation on grit. Uh, do you have any personal recommendations, any personal favorites, any ones that you go back to? Um, I, I also have uh, Hatain Patel and Yuyu Rai with their um, dance and poetry performance, which I think is another interesting way of organizing things. Do you have any uh, recommendations? A couple of faves that stick to mind. Uh, I was also teaching business students for, for quite a while there. So Michael Norton 
um can you buy happiness is a is a favorite <laughs> love that one too and it's got just so so many things in there that you can focus on so statistics the experiment itself the opinion about the outcome i won't no spoilers if you haven't seen it <laughs> well it, it, he he does, he does spoil it himself at the beginning uh in a very cute way because he says uh uh, they say that money can't buy you happiness, but I teach economics. So I want to say that's wrong. <laughs> that's very true. Um, the, the other favorite is Bart Knowles and mm. his mosquito pill and a dog. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've got that in the wrong order. But again, it's just such a, a, a practical talk and he has videos in there and he really outlines what he's doing and it's very very clear and, that, and that's a really good one to introduce students to in terms of structure and how to you know create and and just present three different things in in a very very clear 10 minute structure so that's one of my favorites too mm. uh, well going through the paper there, there are certain things that you point out in creating uh, creating the frame for the work that you've done uh, and you point out that, as you said, TED Talks being a, a free uh, platform, creative commons materials. There are also other materials, or sorry, there are other platforms that are available for free to help you uh, construct support for these things. And one of the things that you bring up is LexTutor.ca, which recently came up in an interview with uh, Chris Cooper, uh, where we equated it to uh, students might not like using it because it looks like Pong because it looks like it was designed in the mid-1980s and they've never updated the code. It works very well, so why would they? I include LexTutor.ca, I include Grammarly, I include, uh, obviously, Google Translate, and now we're getting into things like ChatGPT and other AI uh, services that are available to students. Um, what do you allow your students to use? So, that two sides of it. What do you recommend to your students to use as supporting uh, platforms to help them with their comprehension? And are there other ones that you allow? Are there any that you don't allow um, in your students' uh, work? So in terms of AI, with the, the paper that we're discussing, um, the Lex Tutor profile is more for educators to be able to use that in their selections for the classroom. I think that it's important that we know what level of difficulty the vocabulary is there um, in, in, a particular, in a particular resource, for any resource really. And there are other ways that we can calculate our students' vocab profile. So you can use any of the vocab level tests which are online, um, Oxford do them, Cambridge do them. Um, Stuart McLean has created ones which are specific for Japanese students as well. So any of those are available free online and you can pretty much marry those. So you can check what the resource level is and then you can check what the level of your students are. And then, you know, you, you can choose a, a more suitable resource. In terms of what my students do um, and what they can and can't use, I, I do try and shy away from ChatGPT, but there's a lot more complexities that I'm trying to teach them with listening, which mm -hmm away from writing and away from you know I want them to develop their ideas use the structure as a springboard of whatever resource they're using so then they can think about how it applies to them and their context as I've 
mentioned before. So I think other features of resources, and, and Chris Cooper may have mentioned this in, in his own talk, um, with kind of using platforms which have their own features, which I think Yvonne and Renangia, I can never say your name, Willie, I'm sorry, <laughs> mentioned <laughs> in 2022. Um, are, are the ones that you need to look for. So by this special features, I mean things which are going to include vocabulary activities, have different speeds, have the transcript interactive or not, um, do have visuals or have the choice of visuals or not. So things like um, Todd, Todd Beckham's website, Ello, Breaking News English, which I think Sean Banville is also Japanese alumni somewhere mm -hmm. down there. Mm -hmm. Um, Voice of America, Six Minute English, which is the kind of learning platform that the BBC create. So yeah. those kind of, of platforms are made for second language learners and we can mm. utilize mm. those without adding kind of extra complexities and now use ChatGPT, now have a look at Grammarly, now, now look at this mm. because it's all there and it's a package and it's free. So being able to encourage our students to use these and then being able to help them kind of improve their confidence, improve their routines. That's where the, the strategy instruction comes from in, in, in terms mm. of my research base and being able to help students understand and recognize what can help them, what they don't need help with, what they're confident enough in doing. Mm. Once they're happy with that, then, you know, you can then kind of recommend other websites. So just go to the BBC and watch like the, the one minute review, go to CNN, have a range of accents. NHK also, so NHK World is yep. a very good one for our students because, of course, they have the familiarity of the story in Japanese. And so and then they can go and hear what the English version is as well. So those are the, the kind of platforms that I like to use. And, and they're there and they're very, very easy for us to just coordinate rather than have to make any new materials with. Uh, well, uh for other free platforms that are available, I'd like to promote my own uh, website, Elf Communication, E-L-F Communication.com, where I've taken uh, the interviews from here, cut them down into 10-minute sections, taken out my voice, taken out John's voice, um, and provided a transcript and, and things. And I use that with my listening students because I, we've been lucky enough to have a range of accents and topics on this uh, uh, on this podcast. So from German or uh, Portuguese or Caribbean um, Filipino uh, speakers of English, it's uh, uh, it, it's another platform that people might want to look at. So that's elfcommunication.com, elfcommunication.com. And I do want to uh, make it very, very clear that uh, J.R. Tolkien has nothing to do with it. So, um, so the like paper's been- my list, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the paper we've been talking about is developing graded TED Talks to integrate academic vocabulary into listening lessons for pre-sessional learners. And I think we've gone through most of the, the basically the, the, the cases that you bring up and the way that you uh, organize the uh, lexical profiles and the recommendations uh, that you've included in the paper. Uh, so I'd like to move on and ask you about setting up SIGs. So uh, you returned to Japan, I think, in 2021, having been out of the country for a while doing your PhD, and you immediately noticed that there wasn't a listening SIG 
or not one that was active uh, in JALT, and you made it your mission to create one. So uh, could I ask you, first of all, what was your main motivation for wanting to get included or you know, part of uh, an academic society in Japan so quickly after returning and uh, just just your journey? I would, I'm just intrigued by it. So the story starts a little bit before that, actually, Chris. It's, um, I, I was in New Zealand, so I did my PhD at Victoria University of Wellington. And I was about halfway through, I think, and it was 2019, so pre-COVID times. Mm. And I decided to come What to I like that. to call the better times. <laughs> Indeed. So Jout was still face-to-face at that time, and I believe 2019 was in Nagoya. And I made the journey from Wellington to Nagoya. And I was in contact with Joe at that time and a few other people. And we were writing a paper and we all met up at this conference. And um, Joe kindly introduced me to Todd. And Todd was talking also about Ello and what he was doing with listening in Japan at that time. And I expressed an interest to come back to Japan. And we started talking about Jout and if what kind of SIGs there were. And we realized at that point that there wasn't a SIG. So after a, a very nice week and um, a very good conference, I came back to Wellington or went back to Wellington. And then I started looking into how you could create a new SIG. And they were very supportive up in JALT HQ. So they said that I eventually would have to be back in Japan to run it, but there was no reason why we couldn't get things in motion before. So there are a, a lot of pieces of paperwork, a lot of emails between myself and Jouts. What? A, a Japanese-based society involving <laughs> lots of paperwork? I've never heard of this. Very surprising. So <laughs> um, if anyone is interested in starting a thing, so you, you have to have a look at um, a proposal, first of all. You have to find if there is a niche, if it's not really going to overlap with any other SIG, because obviously you don't want too many and you've got to have your own USP. You have to have a look at um, setting up a constitution. You have to find members and you also need to um, get support. So you need to have like 50 odd signatures of people that don't necessarily want to join the SIG, but feel it's a good idea. So they have to already be JALP members in good standing. So mm. once you create all of, of, of like um, your proposal and you speak to people who are interested in being officers for the first few years, then you can send all this paperwork to JAL. So that took about a year. And then I, I moved back to Japan at the end of 2020. And then I was able to talk to the SIG rep, um, who at that time still is Grant Osterman, who's based in Okinawa. And he kindly talked through all of the process with me, what would need to be done for the proposal. I then attended a meeting and then that had to be approved by the members. Luckily, we were approved. So we were on probation or a new SIG for a year from 2021. Um, and then we were voted in as a fully fledged SIG the year after. So yeah, we've been going ever since. It is uh, funny that the, the two people who kind of encouraged you to 
start this SIG are no longer in Japan. So Todd Buchan's currently in Bangkok and Joe Siegel in Oribor, Sweden. So it's true. So they 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 set you up for it and then left. They did. <laughs> but they are still very much in contact. Um, Joe came back to present at our listening conference yeah. this year, so it's good to catch up with him. And Todd, I'm hoping, will we'll be at the conference next month. So hopefully we'll be able to... Next month? Where, where is that conference? So that that is in our hometown of Scuba. So yeah, we'll be good. <laughs> uh, if only I could get away for it, but... Uh, uh... For the last decade, I've refused to be a member of JALT. So I and they just keep pulling me every time I think I'm out, they keep pulling me back in. So first it was with Joe, and then it was with Aaron, and now it's with John, who keeps getting me in, in contact with uh, with JALT. I um, I don't have any anything philosophically wrong with JALT. I just uh, it's just it seems to be. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And uh, how much of your time is kind of taken up with coordinating this? Obviously, if you're making your own SIG conference, it must be fairly intense, you know, finding the location, putting out the requests for presentations. Like, how much of your time has this or is this taking up right now? So I found that the first year took a lot of time because you had to set up all the new systems. Um, you you have a lot of guidance, but obviously with your SIG, you're running things a little bit differently to other SIGs. So there's going to be welcome letters that need to be written, which is you know specifically for our members. There's going to be newsletters and templates which need to be set up. So those kind of things took a little while. And in the first year, I would say there was a lot of time going into kind of setting up all of those different templates, ideas, emails. But since then, now that we kind of have the structure already, so we usually have things that we can schedule. So our journal goes out hopefully about March, so it's annually at the moment. But if we get more articles, then we can have maybe two versions because it's online with the conference. Um, this is all set up. So the abstract call tends to go out about six months before the conference. Mm. And then depending on the venue, you mentioned about the venue there. So it really depends where it is. So we've had one which was in Kyoto and one which was in Tokyo. We usually try to have an officer who is close on site. So our programs officer, David Corson, is based in Kyoto. So he can kind of be the on-site person. And in Tokyo, um, our our what what is he now hold on give me a moment I'm having a blank <laughs> um our, <laughs> our publications officer Mark Jones is based in Tokyo so he was able to help me with a lot of the arrangements there so I think if if you are a smaller SIG as we are then you know having people in place and thinking about where your offices are is 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 very helpful when you are creating things like conferences and everything else of course we're, we're such an online society now Thanks. To mm. So everything else can be done online, meetings, um, voting, newsletters. So that helps. Um, yeah, uh, actually, your, your Kyoto conference was where I first met uh, Chris Cooper. I was uh, going to the opening remarks, went and sit at the back as usual, because I'm a bit of a bad boy. And so and I, I said, oh, nice to meet you. And we spoke for about 30 seconds and he said, I know that voice. Like, <laughs> do you have a podcast? 
and so yeah guilty uh but it was one of the examples i i found it quite nice actually quite a wholesome thing that at a listening uh conference focused on on listening that just by the sound of someone's voice you could know that you know them and you and you don't know from where i i just want to kind of end on the uh you, you said that you you have a um you have a, a you have an online journal and uh, obviously you're probably part of the article screening process uh can you give us uh as someone who's on the cutting edge of listening instruction methodologies things like that uh anything that's coming in the future is there anything we should be looking out for are there any innovations that we perhaps should be thinking of including in our classrooms i mean obviously ai is going to take all of our lessons in a quite different direction so being able to to use that somewhat and being able to conduct research to see how that is helping our students would be um quite an interesting one we d we don't have anything at the moment which is looking at AI modeling or anything like that. But I think that maybe is the direction where listening research will go in the future, how we can incorporate chat GPT to maybe write the scripts, you know, let's not run away from it. This is what our students are doing. So how mm. they can write the scripts, but, and then what we can do delivery wise with that, how we can listen to something and then maybe use the AI to help us take notes, but and then it's not the full notes. So and then what is our summary or our comprehension from the notes that have been taken? So being able to incorporate those different aspects, I think, are the, the next step. Um, I'm still very, very metacognitive when it comes to mm. what my students are doing. So it's very much on the process, their, their reflections, being able to identify their, their own difficulties. So in terms of using AI, I think they need to know what their difficulties are first and then how they can use um, such platforms to kind of help them and to support them rather than just using it on the off. Because, you know, in real life, we're, we're not going to be able to sit exams where you can use your computer to translate things or to dictate things. So these are still very much, you know, skills that we need to have help our students develop. Yeah, you, you bring up a point there. Um, that is something that uh, is somewhat of a methodological um, conversation that always goes on in language teaching, the difference between uh, process and product and process oriented or product oriented. And I remember having this conversation with um, uh, Joe. In fact, I think we wrote a paper that was actually uh, more product less, uh, no, uh, more process less product. Uh, but it was based on note taking. So what we were trying to do was uh, introduce a, a process oriented element of um, evaluation, and then try to come up with a, a system of. Because I think it was like number of words written, number of keywords identified. I'm just trying to remember the criteria that we had for it now. But um, given that I think that you, you're you saying that the process is more important than the product, do you have any thoughts on listening evaluation, perhaps in, in relation to uh, high stakes tests? So we've been thinking about how we evaluate note-taking and what one of my research groups, which includes Joe and also Nathan Ducker, 
um, at, in, down in Miyazaki, we created a rubric and we've been playing around with, you know, grading each other's notes, grading student notes. So we're, we're just finishing up a paper which looks at how we each graded student notes with this rubric that we created. And it it was a little bit holistic. So we were looking for specific features. We were looking mm. at using information units, but and then we were also commenting on, you know, what we thought was a, a good set of notes, what what was helpful, how we can try and work out what the interpretation of the student was. But it is quite difficult to do that. So I in the past, I've kind of looked at evaluating student notes um, in in two parts. So we kind of look at the note taking itself and then the summary. So then we can see what the transfer of information is. And in in the same way that um, you did in your past paper, you, you kind of look at how many keywords were written down, what abbreviations were used, what kind of notes or figures or tables were noted by the student, because that gives you an idea of their selection. And I think yeah. that's what's important when we are listening to something, even, even when we're listening back to podcasts, I mean, you know, you're, you're probably only taking like 40 to 60 percent in depending on your your attention. So mm. of that 40, 60 percent, you are probably just listening out for the keywords. So that's going to be helping our understanding. So being able to see what the student does in their notes and their selection of the input is, is one part of the evaluation, I think. But then we can go more process-based with the summary, have a look at what they've understood in their own words. And then the opinion is really where it gets to kind of not only their agreement or disagreement on the speaker, but and then that's where I also add Okay, so now you reflect on what you've just done. So what was easy? What was difficult? Did you get the accent? Did you understand the concepts? And then that's where we can really help them from a process-based based point of view, but still kind of help evaluate what they've understood from the listening. Well, I've always said that the, it, it, the, the reason that I support a process-based approach is that uh, so long as you're focusing on these things and the range of things that's going on at the same time, the processing of um, the input, uh, students are generally more likely to recall the abilities at a time that's convenient for them. So not necessarily in uh, a final evaluation or in a, in a language listening test, but at a time when they're talking to someone uh, with, and because they have uh, experienced many different accents, many different speaking styles, speaking speed and things like that, um, that they their kind of processing time slows down and they're able to get more from the interaction than they would have if they'd only ever interacted with North American English in a very structured and scripted way. So uh, I, I honestly, I, that's why I use TED Talks a lot. Like I, I I have at least two that I give to my students every week, and then they have to select three of their own from different sources. But uh, you know, input-led kind of process-oriented um, instruction, I think, is is the way to go with listening. And I, I fully support uh, your um, you know uh, creating the SIG and getting people together because uh, listening because it's such because it's only receptive. It, when they started to come up with ideas of like active listening and things like that, that's no, that's just engaged listening. 
So uh, I was never on I was never on that train, but I, I always thought uh, that it was a useful process oriented skill. And then when people like uh, Joe Siegel came into my life, it, it uh, gave me something to well, at least gave me something to research for a couple of years. And uh, I hope that probably next year I'd I'd like to uh, come back uh, to your conference any idea where it might be next year we're hoping that it will be back in kansai so we're just mm. um at kyoto possibly osaka again so we're hoping it will be kind of west japan east japan and and kind of skip just so and then we can hopefully see more of our members <laughs> well kyoto's uh, kyoto or osaka is great because it's just so, it's so central like they, they term it um west japan but it's really right in the center and it's a very nice hub for people to get to you, you are west west japan <laughs> we're, we're, we're very west west japan down here in kyushu uh but i would say if it was back in kyoto i'd be very happy the, the, the fish and chips in that restaurant were very nice that, that's the reason to go back chris <laughs> well thank you very much for your time today uh we've been speaking with uh naheem marabakas ring uh, from Tsukuba University on her paper, Developing Graded TED Talks to Integrate Academic Vocabulary into Listening Lessons for Pre-Sessional Learners. And um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.